We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... Shotgun for Allen. Allen steps up. Delivers. Knocked away. John Brown, the intended receiver, and Marcus Peters makes the play for Baltimore. Welcome, everybody, to a special Monday, Monday night edition of the Rock Pal Report podcast. I am your host, Bill, season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Ian Eagle from CBS Sports. Folks, I don't know if you can tell from the sound of my voice, but this is another one of the reasons why we do not do Monday Night Podcast. Exactly. You need voice recovery. <laughs> voice recovery. It was Because I play hard, Chris. I leave it all out there in the field. Chris, a toast. All right. To the 9-4 and four Buffalo Bills, we, it was tough. Yeah. <laughs> this one was tough. Basically lost by a touchdown to a Super Bowl contender. Technically. <sighs> it was it was a tough loss. It was a hard fought game. Not without its silver linings. I personally, Chris, I, I mean, I can't imagine how our players must feel. So I'm not going to pretend. I mean, obviously, Josh Allen notwithstanding. Mondays are hard. Mondays are hard to try to organize a fucking podcast. Yeah, it is. Mondays are hard just to. I mean, Chris, I'm lucky enough that I don't have to work another Monday until the end of the month. Yeah, you got you got lucky. I started a new. A new job today, so it's was, it was extra tough. New day, new job, and then having to come home and grab audio for the show. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, my life was tough today too. You know, I woke up at about seven, got the wife off to work, cleaned up from my celebration last night after the New England Patriots lost. You know, just kind of shook off the hangover of an entire day of just exuberance and just taking it all in over there at New Era Field. I mean, it, Chris. It it's a hard trying to organize a show, an entire podcast in less than twenty four hours. That's it's tough. It's tough, but hey, but we we're here to give you guys the content you need. We are the hardest working, hardest drinking, pettiest Buffalo Bills podcast in existence. And with that said, we're going to jump right into our Week fourteen recap 
The Baltimore Ravens 24, the Buffalo Bills 17. My stats of the game. Josh Allen, 17 to 39, good for 43%, 146 yards, one touchdown, no picks, a fumble, and a 62.6 rating. Lamar Jackson, 16 to 25, good for 64%, 145 yards, three touchdowns, one pick, and a 102.5 rating. Devin Singletary, 118 yards on 23 touches. Steven Hauschka, improbable, 3 of 3 on field goals of 47, 48, and 36, and 1 for 1 on extra points. Baltimore rushing yards per game entering week 14, 200.7. Total rushing versus Buffalo, 118. Baltimore points per possession entering week 14, 2.8, which I'd point out is more than the greatest show on turf. Yep, heard that last week from Ken McCusick. Baltimore points per possession against Buffalo. 1.04. First of all, if we're going to talk about where this day started, successful tailgate, and I had to, I got to say, I was thrilled with just the stadium atmosphere. I mean, first of all, shout out to Dr. Kyle Trimble. He runs bangedupbills.com. Mark with a C came out to the game with us. Preston King and his crew from Virginia, North Carolina. Longtime listener of the show, Kevin Harrington, and his family showed up at the tailgate this week. Chris, great turnout. Yeah, I always like meeting people that listen to the show just so I can ask them, how do you get the show? When did you start listening? That's Drew. Go talk to him. I don't like socializing. <laughs> It was just really good to meet you guys all and hang out with everybody, get to break bread, drain a couple beers. By a couple, I mean, I I think no short, probably about a dozen. Yeah, you had a lot. (laughs) The beer that I couldn't open. I had a a multi-tool, folks. This proves what a caveman I am. Yeah, you can go to our Twitter, at Rockpile Report, and see a photo of it. (laughs) Drew just ripped a tab off a a beer can and then tried to use like a a multi-use tool to to open the uh, mouth hole. Couldn't do it. Just mangled you it. You just stabbed it. I'm a caveman. What, 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 gorilla. What can I say? Also, thank you for Kyle. Grilled long-cut pepperoni, folks. If you're looking for anything, to sp- even a backyard barbecue, grilled long-cut pepperoni dipped in a brine of cornstarch, sugar, beer. Done. You grill that son of a bitch. It, it, it just brought something. It, it's now going to be a staple of my tailgates because I've never had anything like that before in my life. And speaking of things that I haven't had or haven't enjoyed, you know, I've long held the idea that Popeye's is a superior fried chicken. I mean, let's let's face it. KFC is essentially the Little Caesars of fried chicken. When you've got Zaxby's and Popeye's. Mrs. Winners and Churches. KFC is, without a doubt, the Tonawanda fried chicken. (laughs) So obviously, Mark with a C would show up to my tailgate, not only with a case of Schmidt. That's right, folks. Schmidt. I have one here in front of me that I'm going to open now in Mark's honor. It's It says it's a premium beer on the can, and it's got two rainbow trout. I forgot that this beer existed until Mark... I don't, I don't trust a beer that has rainbow trout on it. <laughs> but he also shows up with KFC. I know there's a lot of places where that those two things in conjunction would probably get you arrested for trespassing. Someone would just call the police on you and have you removed. But with that said... Yeah, it turns out when you're half in the bag at a podium, it's actually not that bad. (laughs) 
I also learned that one of Preston's friends from out of state is my own personal Kaiser Sose. And if you're like Chris, who I can already tell doesn't get that reference, go watch the movie The Usual Suspects and look at Kevin Spacey's character. The guy you think you understand right up until you don't. (laughs) But those guys are great, and I don't blame him. I do get a little wound up, a little out of hand, and apparently my wife isn't the only one who thinks that I sometimes just need to take the edge off. (sighs) Chris, the storyline heading into this game, people were all up in arms, myself included, that there was a lot of tickets for sale in the secondary market. There was talk that there wasn't going to be a great turnout. Even though this was an important game against a great opponent, that you need the crowd advantage that having 40 to 50, 60,000 of your own fans in the building is going to bring you. Well, it was an odd December game. It was like 44 degrees and sunny in Buffalo, which that's, that's a rarity. And even, even leading into the game, I was on StubHub myself, and I was finding tickets in our section for about 10 to 15 bucks over face value, which isn't that bad if you guys like paying 65, 70 bucks for tickets in Section 200. I thought I thought tickets on the on the secondary market were reasonably priced, and people people did uh, people take advantage. Up. And there, that's the there thing. were a lot of people there. There, there. I saw some Ravens fans. There was obviously large pockets of them. I give them credit for traveling, but the stadium was loud, and I, that's what we needed. I mean, that that's what you you need to see that in games that matter. Because for, so Chris, during the Super Bowl years, the Bills had a hard time selling December December games. Yeah, the greatest comeback ever was not shown locally because it was not sold out. Because nobody went. So with that said, it was encouraging to see all of our fellow fans out there at the stadium and have that place be as loud as it was. And the Bills needed every bit of our help because the offense gave them none. (laughs) The offense gave that team no help for three quarters. (sighs) Man. Chris, the, on this can of Schmidt, it says the brew that grew with the great Northwest. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not true. That is one of the worst beers you could you could drink. It's, this this beer is like a Labatt Blues redneck cousin, like a slightly class, like a slightly slightly less classy version yeah. of a Labatt Blue. It's like Labatt Blues cousin from Windsor. <laughs> Oh, when we start to break down this game, folks, the the offense struggled, and a lot of it started up front. I mean, the protection issues fueled just a full scale meltdown of our offense in this game. It seemed like it was it was a whole offensive line as a whole, as it wasn't like just one person re- not doing their I job. I watched the game today, and I couldn't tell you who's more to blame for this because every single member of our offensive line and our tight ends just allowed pressure. It didn't matter. From one snap to the next, there wasn't one person doing a more egregious job than the guy next to him of dragging that unit down. We talked a lot last week about how vital it was going to be to the team. Game plan. Who's going to have the better plan and who's going to execute it well? And in this game, the offense came out with the short end of the stick. The Ravens' defensive coordinator dialed up an incredibly aggressive game plan. And... Our whole offense was under siege for most of the day. Even when they didn't have an egregious lead in the first half, Chris, they sent extra rushers on delayed blitzes, stunts, twists. They ran, they threw all kinds of things at this Bills offensive line and sent extra rushers on a pretty consistent basis. And you saw the implosion that it caused. I mean, just look, 
Five sacks allowed in the first half. 18 total passing yards. 74 total yards, which is the lowest of the Bills this season in the first half. 12 total quarterback hurries for the game. I mean, Chris, everything that they threw at us, whether it was pressure coming from the secondary, whether it was just defensive linemen moving around up front pre-snap and then bringing in a delayed blitz from the linebacking core. Chris, you, you and I pointed out multiple times where there's a play over the course of this game where there was an unblocked pass rusher just in the backfield. That might happen like three to five times throughout the course of the game. Which is incredible because that's not supposed to happen, not even two or three times, much less four or five, six. And they, because of the pressure, they were forced to, I think, forced to try to alter what their game plan was going to be. I mean, early on, you saw them try to dial up some deep passes. Yeah, Josh Allen was not hitting them at all. And they didn't work. But, and I've seen it all over Twitter, all over social media. People are angry at Josh Allen. Why can't Josh Allen hit the deep ball? Do you know how hard it is when you, don't, when, when you realize very quickly that you can't trust the protection in front of you? Chris, you're getting your ass kicked back there. How long are you going to stand back there and use proper mechanics to try to drop that football into what is an over-the-shoulder throw? It's like you're trying to throw into a bucket that's moving. Yeah, and our offensive line didn't give him enough time to you know, set his base throwing platform. And the good thing about all those throws is they were, they were overthrows. It's never good to underthrow a wide receiver. No. And, that's, and I guess that's the thing is, when you look at what he was having to do, it was a lot of improvisation even within the pocket, even when he didn't roll out. And then the cumulative effect of all of that pressure was that there was a lot of times when Allen didn't have to. I mean, you, everyone got on Sam Darnold. Remember when on national TV, when he was mic'd up, he admitted that he was seeing ghosts? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, that's what happens to quarterbacks in the pocket. When you, you know, That's something that can happen. When you're under duress like that, then they start using simulated pressure where it's not actual blitzes, but you still feel the pressure and the quarterback vacates the pocket early, immediately making whatever throw he's going to try to attempt harder. That's, that's, we saw that play out in front of us. I mean, it, it was brutal. I, I, I understand. It's, well, when you can't be comfortable from one snap to the next, the result is almost always erratic passing. Chris, think about all the great wins we've had against good quarterbacks over the last decade. It usually comes with us putting that quarterback, you put him under siege, pressure. I mean, yeah. do you remember the game here in Buffalo? I, I, was, I immediately went back in my head as I was sitting on the couch today, uh, putting the game together, or at least our game plan for tonight. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I remember us beating Aaron Rodgers here in Buffalo. Oh, yeah. The Rex Ryan era. That and was huge. We beat that team, but it was Mario Williams. It was Mario Williams, and it was our pass rushers just harassing the shit out of him for an entire day. So Aaron Rodgers didn't look like Aaron Rodgers. It's very easy to make a quarter. So, so if it's that easy to make a veteran quarterback like that look poor, imagine what you can do to a guy who's still trying to find his footing like Josh Allen. You know, The stark contrast for me was you think back to all of I and mean, we were joking on last week's podcast about how much time Allen had to operate in the pocket. The Ravens clearly took that as a challenge and said, look, we're never going to let you be comfortable. Let's see if you can operate. I mean, ultimately, I, I can't fault Josh Allen because the protection up in front just wasn't good enough. No, it wasn't. I think if we, if our offense could have executed 
like 50% of what they did against Dallas, we probably could have won that game. Probably. I think, though, that the thing... I mean, there's obviously enough blame to go around, and it doesn't just rest with the offensive line. People... Chris, there was a failure to execute almost across the board. I mean, I... You have drops, big drops, from some of the guys that you have to rely on because they are the top of your depth chart. Singletary, Knox, Beasley, every single one of them had a drop that were on a drive that ended with a punt. You can't have that. These are the guys that you're kind of forced to use as your go-to players right now. Because this team is very much an unfinished product on offense. In fact, I don't think Allen's getting enough credit here. Because when everything was going wrong and falling apart, Allen, dug deep, and yes, his playmakers finally started coming around, making plays for him. He was able to engineer drives and help this team claw its way back into the football game. I mean, that, that's... Chris, when you're losing 24-9, to 9, you say to yourself, okay, is it time for us to leave? Yeah. Like, are we on the verge of a you blowout? You said that. You yeah. said that right before that touchdown drive. I said, look, we're on the verge of a blowout, guys. If they score again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we should probably try to beat traffic. We're running out of time here, and I, don't, I just don't see it. Allen, Allen does have like a fourth quarter clutch gene in him. He's a gamer, and ultimately some of our playmakers are too. I, I feel like that's something that gets lost in all this. Josh Allen's fourth quarter execution is somehow so much. Well, so are the guys around him, Cole Beasley being one of them. Beasley's a guy who he's a veteran, and at the same time, he's become a go-to guy for Josh Allen, and you saw it on that touchdown drive. You saw it on the touchdown drive to get things started that ultimately got us back into the swing of things. So with that said, I I don't know. Chris, I almost wonder in games like this what this team would look like if the Bills had a truly dynamic athlete at the wide receiver position. John Brown's not bad. He does a lot of things better than people give him credit for. He's got good hands. He's reliable, which is why he's the guy Josh Allen. Like, think about it. The final play of the game. He, you almost knew that John Brown was going to be the target. Yeah, because I would say that. In yeah. clutch situations, that's his guy. There and, and there's a reason that Marcus Peters was the defensive back lined up. It wasn't a mistake that one of the best cover corners in football over the last few weeks happens to be the guy shadowing John Brown on that play? No, it's because they understand our offensive tendencies. Yeah, well, I don't think John, I don't think John Brown had, I don't know what his stat line was for the, for the game, but I know he spent most of the day being covered by Marcus Peters. So it was a fourth and eight, you know, in the red zone, game on the line. Why would you, why would you force that throw? Why would you force it to John Brown and not look at your other receivers? I mean, this is going to be a conversation for some time in the summer. But I feel like you got to give this kid somebody else. Because clearly, we watched it play out. When you have an opportunity to go out there and tie a football game, you can't have one guy who your quarterback just, okay, that's the only guy I trust enough to make a big play when I need one. You can't have that. Why can't you? Like... Especially not when he's John Brown. John Brown's a very good wide receiver, but I don't think he's a number one wide receiver. Yeah, he's just like a deep threat or number two. No, I think he's more than a deep threat, but I, I don't see... He's not physically imposing. His catch radius isn't gigantic. His route running isn't the greatest in the league. We should have one of them. He's a jack-of-all-trades and master of none at this point. We should have somebody like that on, on the roster at the receiver position. Somebody who can 
high point a ball, like a basketball, box somebody out, mm-hmm. get physical. I mean, I don't think we have anybody on the, on the roster in the receiving room like that, right? I, well, oddly enough, we had that, and we chose not, not to, to address him. him. I mean, that's, that's one of the things, Chris. If, if, if I want to get pointed about the offense, I mean, I know I'm sounding like I'm making a lot of excuses for him up here. If I want to get pointed about the offense, I'm going to start with the, the decision-making on some of these things. You're going to continue to dress a blocking tight end in a game that's going to dictate that you probably have to throw the football. But it's a blocking tight end that gets called for a lot of penalties. He's very one-dimensional. And yet you'd rather dress him instead of a wide receiver like Duke, Duke Williams. Williams, yeah. Duke Williams. I, I don't know. Robert Foster, again, they, they like something in what he brings. I get it because he can do the Isaiah McKenzie kind of sweep. Well, run. that was you Sorry. being in the coach's room because he needs, what, 48 more catches so you don't have to drink a Seagram's? <laughs> Jesus, I forgot I made that bet. Thanks for reminding me, jerk. But ultimately, there's some questionable things happening here on offense. But ultimately, it underscores the fact that this is a this team, Chris, this is the byproduct of what we are, an unfinished product in terms of overall talent on the offensive side of the football. You've got young players. You've got players who are maybe a little bit overmatched for the job that they're, they're being asked to do. I just think that overall, for people to be, I, I, you can be upset. You can be disappointed that this offense didn't show better. But to be angry or to get down on the team because, oh, this team sucks. They did a lot with what I think was a clear mismatch in terms of talent that heavily favored the defense of the Baltimore Ravens in this game. Yeah. I, I mean, our defense, our defense put out, and they could only stop them so many times for our offense to do something. Well, I guess that's the thing. I mean, the story of this game for me, Chris, and the reason why I'm not on the edge after watching this watching this team play, if there's a bright spot that could come out of this loss, it's that in a big in a big spot against an absolute bully of an opponent, our defense flexed its muscles a little bit. Okay? We all sat here and we wondered how the Bills were going to try and stop this ridiculous attack of the Ravens. Or if they even had the talent necessary to necessary to have a puncher's chance. Chris, I was we talked about it with Ken McCusick last week on the show. I was legitimately afraid for what was going to happen to those guys out there. Because in my mind, I'm thinking we're going to have to go nickel heavy because you can't trust Lorenzo Alexander on the edge. He's just not fast enough. He's not good enough. You're, you're going to have to put out a lighter defense against a he- what's going to be heavy run packages. And I don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to get bullied? And the answer we got, what we saw play out on that field, there's not a single Bills fan who can be pissed off about what happened out there. Okay? Our front seven absolutely manhandled the rushing attack of the Ravens in a way that no football team has been able to do for the past eight weeks. Their yards per carry for their biggest playmakers including Lamar Jackson. It was incredible what they were able to do to hem these guys in. Yeah, he didn't have much in the, uh, was it the read option play? He might have had like one, one brush in a read option that went, you know, like 15 yards. But the containment on uh, Lamar Jackson was phenomenal on Sunday. 
No, it, it was something to see. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's been running for almost 100 yards a game. We held him up to four yards a carry on 11 attempts. After a while, they just gave it up. I don't know. I, I don't want to say that they gave it up, but I think that they realized they had to get more creative because the Bills are bringing more to the table than they expected us to. And it wasn't that we did it with any kind of trickery. You know, it wasn't smoke and mirrors. It was strength on strength. Our defensive front seven out there against your your offensive front. You could tell by the way that they were attacking the gaps of the Ravens' offensive line with aggression, but controlled aggression. You know, we talked to Ken a lot about how one of the biggest flaws with Tremaine Edmonds is that he'll over-pursue sometimes. He'll take poor angles or he... He'll, he'll be so aggressive on trying to make a big negative play that he ends up taking himself out of the play entirely. We saw it on Thanksgiving against uh, against Ezekiel Elliott a couple times where he missed tackles because he was trying to make too big of a play. I think even on the first drive, he had a shot at tackling Lamar Jackson and missed, and Lamar Jackson ended up running for like 15 yards. But with that said, the, the, the controlled aggression that they played with didn't result in a ton of breakdowns and I think that's got to be one of the most important parts of what they did. Even more impressive was the fact that more so than any team that the Ravens have faced in months, the Bills found a way to maintain containment. To your point, they forced him to be a passer. You're talking about he attempted 25 passes, Chris. That's high for Lamar Jackson. I mean, when you go and you look at, or at least it's higher than I'm sure his team would want. I mean, when you look at this recent winning streak they've been on, they've been carving up some of the best teams in football. And yet, Chris, you have to go all the way back to week week five, a game that they won in overtime, to find a game where he had more than 25 passing attempts. And in recent weeks, he's been trying as few as 20 per game. Yeah, their M.O. is to run the damn ball. So the fact that we found a way, we found a way to make him a passer, the results speak for themselves. Average completed air yards, Chris, 2.9, which was the lowest in the NFL this past week. Baltimore's wide receivers had seven catches for 19 total yards. That's fewer than any one Bills wide receiver or tight end who touched the football. The Bills maintained their standing as the number three overall defense despite facing the number one overall offense and actually leapfrogged San Francisco in terms of scoring defense. Chris, they earned their stripes against an offense that no one in the NFL has been able to slow down. Yeah, we didn't get to win the game, but hopefully the rest of the NFL shows us a little bit of respect. Chris, they single-handedly keyed the... Because uh, we talk about the offense, and you say, okay, it's great that down the stretch, you're still there. Our offense found a way to claw back into the game with some timely drives. But the story here is that your defense didn't let a team that's been bullying other... In their own houses. They went out, This is the team that went out, went out to L.A. and ran them out of their own gym. Yep. They didn't let them push push our defense around. They kept it close on the scoreboard and ultimately between special teams and some late offensive heroics and some, call it some timely penalties. Our team 
was in a position to at least compete with, what, seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter? Yeah. I mean, round of applause for these sons of bitches. It was interesting, Chris, to watch what they did with their personnel and the way that certain players responded to the individual challenges that kind of were presented to them. I mean, you got Shaq Lawson. Shaq Lawson is having... Early on in this season... He's in a contract year. Early on in this season, you wondered if he was ever going to really get it. You know, he, he kind of came out at the end of last season, and you, you hoped it would carry over into this year. But he started off slow. The last three weeks, he has been the more impactful. I mean, Jerry Hughes does what Jerry Hughes does. He does a lot of things that don't show up in the box score. But Shaq Lawson to me, has probably been the best defensive end on this football team. I mean, Sean McDermott has gone out of his way to praise him repeatedly. You know, he calls him. He, he's the guy who brings the juice. He's, he's, he's my dog. He goes out there and hunts. You know, he does things for us. Shaq Lawson was a force on the edge, not just in terms of bringing pressure, but what I was really, Chris, what really had me pitching a half stack was watching just him play with excellent leverage against run-blocking tight ends and offensive tackles in the running game. Literally just by keeping his shoulders square and playing with great leverage and violence in his hands, he was able to keep him from anchoring into him, and he set the tone out there on the edge against a lot of those stretch running plays they tried to run. That, that's why you saw so many of their running plays not generate the yards that they're used to seeing. Because you had Shaq Lawson out there just occup- stringing their blockers out, not letting them make any forward progress. It, Chris, for a guy in a contract year, I don't know. I don't know. He's, he, I get it. He hasn't been consistently special. But more and more and more, Chris, he's looking like a guy that you have to actually consider maybe writing a check for. Portal <laughs> probably cover that. Come the end of the season, but I mean, he's playing lights out, you know, you, I mean, for, for Buffalo fans, Buffalo sports fans in general, you don't want, you don't want this to be like a, 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 a Drew Stafford like contract oh, here. Jesus. Remember like when he got 31 goals and then we signed him to like a fat four or five year deal and then just never showed up again. That's, that's, be- that's the kind of thing you, you don't want to see with Shaq. If you reward him, I don't care as long as he keeps doing what he's doing now. Whatever. It'll play out in the offseason, but Chris, I need more of this from him because that was impressive. Impressive. Jumped off jumped off the screen at you. Tremaine Edmonds. You know, we were just talking about him a few minutes ago. He had one of his best games I think I've seen from him in a Bills uniform. I mean, really, as a whole, this season, we, we've been very lucky that we've gotten to watch a bright young star in the NFL like Edmonds, who's an athletic freak. All of his... All of the issues with Edmonds coming out in the draft, the reason he wasn't the first linebacker taken, despite being a, what, running a a wide receiver speed. He's 4'4 at 6'5", 255 pounds. It was all about what was going on between the years. Whether or not he, it was going to be a slow acclimation for him to get the game of football. Plus him being so young. He played what might be the best game I've seen from him in a Bills uniform on Sunday, which is funny because I thought I said that about the Cowboys game and I saw it again this week. And I think the thing that I really liked was watching him communicate effectively across the defense throughout the course of the day. 
moving guys around and signaling changes in coverage based on pre-snap movement. We talked with Ken McCusick in our preview show last week about the fact that the Ravens don't typically use wide receivers pre-snap. There's not a lot of pre-snap motion built into their offense. Instead, they, they use their tight ends for that role. I think that based on their kind of early struggles to crack the Bills' defense the way they wanted to, they kind of had to change it up. Greg Roman had to go, had to dig down into his bag of tricks and started integrating more wide receiver movement. Now, Chris, if you're watching tape on a team and you see this, they, they're doing something that they haven't done in weeks. You haven't seen it on film study, so you haven't had a lot of time to prepare for it. To see Tremaine Edmonds communicating assignment changes on the fly for, for something that you're not even coming into the game prepared for, that, to me, is impressive. It's ridiculously impressive. Just directing traffic in real time. Significant strides in development. And then, you look at the box score, Chris. He was all over the place. He was in on three tackles for loss. He was constantly flashing behind the line of scrimmage. Registered his first interception of the season. And it was a big one. It was a big one because it was a game where the Bills needed something. You know, you needed a little bit of juice. Yeah, wish we could have done something on that drive because that turnover was right at friggin' midfield. <laughs> and yet, probably, for as much as I'm impressed by Tremaine Edmonds, I got to eat a little crow here. Two weeks in a row, Chris. I'm eating it. The ageless wonder, Lorenzo Alexander. We talked to Ken on his show. Yeah, I went on his show Wednesday night, and I talked to him about the limitations of our defense and why I felt that we'd have to play a lot of nickel. And most of it's centered around Lorenzo Alexander. The fact that he's an, he's a, what, a 37-year-old strong side linebacker. He's great around the line of scrimmage, but he's a liability in space. And we saw a couple years, uh, two years ago, or last year, in New England, where New England just put Cordero Patterson, who's oh, a yeah, wide jet receiver, sweeps. on jet sweeps to wherever Lorenzo Alexander was lined up on the field, and he just couldn't get to the edge of the defense fast enough to get containment. So you would think with that logic, having seen games like that from a player who's 37, who's in the twilight of his career, that there's no way you'll ever roll with a heavy package because Lorenzo just doesn't have the chops. Instead, it's like someone got in a fucking time machine and went back to his Pro Bowl season and got that Lorenzo to suit up for us on Sunday. He had his best showing of the season. He played 68% of the snaps, Chris. So you could tell they went with a base defense a lot more often than they didn't and just trusted that Lorenzo could hold his own. And his response, five solo tackles, one tackle for a loss, a batted pass, and a hit on the quarterback. Our defensive line kept their offensive line busy enough that he was allowed to make plays like he was four years younger than he currently is, which is absurd. I saw saw him in a lot of plays with containment where he would, you know, Lamar Jackson would try to go to the edge, Shaq Lawson's there, cut back, and then you have Lorenzo Alexander there, there, and he couldn't get anything going in the run game at all. I mean, Chris, he shined. And he was an integral part of a defensive effort that took every single punch the Ravens had to try to give them in the ground game and yet wouldn't allow Baltimore to break or intimidate them. For as impressed as I was with Shaq, as impressed as I was with Trey, I think that the, the, the game hinges on what Lorenzo Alexander was able to accomplish, and it's because of that that he's this week's hero. 
Do you know who the real heroes are? The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. He was fantastic on, uh, on uh, Sunday. On Sunday, Lorenzo was the leader that he was brought back here to be when we signed him to an extension knowing how old he was. Except this time it showed on the field more than it did behind closed doors or in practice, where he's usually viewed as the elder statesman who's there as kind of the quiet leader of the team, which was a massive boost to the defense as a whole. And then after the game, he had this to say to the media. The gap isn't big. I mean, you look at today, it's probably, probably three plays in the game where this game shifts big time. Um, obviously, that big one we gave up. I'm pretty sure the offense could look at a couple of plays where we make some catches that we normally make or that we can make, and, and the outcome in this game is much different. Now, obviously, we didn't do that, but it's not like it's a, this big reach that we're looking for. So we're right there. Um, I think the thing is just to learn f- uh, from this. Obviously, being in these big type of games, uh, the margin of error is a lot smaller, and so we can't, you know, Make those mistakes that you may be able to do on a team that's not as good as the Ravens. It's Lorenzo Alexander post game from John Scott Spectrum News. Chris, he is spot on. Nick Bat from the Nick and Nolan Show has an article over at Buffalo Rumblings outlining not one or two, but ten potentially game changing plays that this team left on the field on Sunday, including the what identical. 33-yard passes that were missed. One to Brown, one to Foster. The blown assignments by Hayden Poyer that resulted in that long touchdown catch by Hayden Hurst for the Ravens. Yeah. And yet, despite all of that, by all accounts, rather than be beaten down by that, they're looking at the fact that despite the mistakes, they were in it when it mattered. And luckily for us, we've got a veteran like Lorenzo around to make sure that these young players don't forget it. And this week, zero. <laughs> I mean, when you lose a football game, you look around and you say, okay, what's low-hanging fruit? Because you never want to beat a dead horse when you're giving out superlatives. Because that's... Uh, Chris, come on now. We're not hacks here, are we? I mean, you are. <laughs> oh, so my zero of the week, this week, the award goes to punter Corey Bajorquez. <laughs> wow, you suck at this. We did have a couple of shanks on Sunday. Oh my God. He had more shanks than Rikers Island. You have one job as a punter, and it's to create distance on the field for your defenses to work with on the ensuing possession. That is literally, I bet you if, you if I were to Google it, that would be the definition of what a punter is. And while he did have two nice punts on the day, Those don't make up for having punts of 35, 41, 33, and 29 yards. 29 yards, Chris. That's 60 feet. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a little over 60 feet. It wasn't wasn't even windy on Sunday, so you can't blame weather in this. Chris, I think, you know, considering that you're an athlete and all. Yes, I am. (laughs) I think that you could punt a ball 29 yards. Let's go out in the street and do it. I think we should challenge Corey Bohorquez to a punt-off. Every time that you outkick him, he owes us $5. And whenever he outkicks us, he gets a golf clap because that's your fucking job. Just go out there and kick the goddamn ball. <laughs> Damn you, Bohorquez. Ah, oh, man. Chris, final thoughts. 
Where do you? How do you feel after this game? It's like the same thing with the Cowboys game. I'm just glad that we did not get blown out. We showed that we could hang with the Ravens, and we were probably one of the only defenses to be able to shut down their rushing attack. And there was a couple of post game uh, pressers. I remember in uh, Hughes and Lorenzo Alexander both said in their post game press conference, "Oh yeah, we'll be seeing them again." So wh- while we did lose by seven, you know the team didn't seem to lose confidence going forward the rest of the season. And that was that, Chris. That was the fear, right? Yeah, that you would lose in such a way that it would be something that rolled over and bled over into the next game. Coming into this game, we all knew that the Bills were essentially boxing outside of their weight class. You're talking about an opponent that's been steamrolling its competition that consisted of some of the NFL's best football teams. The Seahawks, the 49ers, the Patriots, the Rams. Chris, these guys aren't slouches. Yeah. Okay? And with everything that went wrong, and with how overmatched our offense was for the majority of the game, both in game plan and execution... Our team had the ball with a chance to tie and potentially win in the fourth quarter. That is more than you could have asked for looking over the last two months of Ravens box scores. And it's it's absolutely something I can see this young team building off of. We watched some of our youngest players have some of their best games. We watched old players who I thought were washed up find another Chris find another gear and put out career performances we watched Chris we saw that for as inconsistent as this team has been and can be this truly is a well coached well prepared team that can dig deep when it matters to the point Lorenzo Alexander made you're in a big game against one of the best teams in football What this young team just got a lesson in is not only that the margin of error when you're playing the best of the best is incredibly slim, but that this is a team that isn't far off, isn't that far away from answering the bell when needed. They went out there and played man-sized football against a physical, aggressive opponent. Chris, it was like a Rocky movie. You took three quarters of body blows and shots to the chin, and yet you somehow almost fought your way back for a W. Just hearing the way that they talk and the way that they're carrying themselves, you can already tell that they're building off of that. They're building off of that. And they're approaching one of the most important stretches of the 2019 season. So, Chris, to their point, I hope we do see them again. I want to look back at this game like it was the movie Rocky Three, And I hope that there are clubber Lang. Because I'll tell you what, after Sunday, I feel like Bernie Mac up here when I say, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, for those of you who don't get the reference and don't understand African-American comedy, just, just Google Bernie Mac. I ain't scared. This is how I feel here and now today. Chris, I feel good. I feel good, despite the fact that the Bills lost. Usually I need about 48 hours to calm down, don't I? Yeah, you started to calm down in the fourth quarter because 
you spent most of the game complaining about Josh Allen, and I had to remind you that on Tuesday you said if we can hang with them, that's like a moral victory. This is where Chris becomes like <laughs> Chris is like a yogi for me. He just kind of brings it down. Drew, remember when you said this? You need to remember because I know your alcohol fueled rage right now. It's 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 burning. Sundays is all emotion for you. It's burning like a fire, and you can't let it burn. <laughs> down around you and instead I you, you reel it back in but the thing that really has me fired up Chris is the fact that despite the loss the silver lining is that our hopes our playoff hopes didn't really take that much of a hit and it's with that that we take a look around in this week's week 15 AFC playoff picture April I know all this okay but I do like hearing it so go on most of you already know this you already know where the bills stand but I'm still going to hash it through for you because, Chris, that's what we do here at the Rock Pal Report. That's right. We pontificate. We are still sitting as a Buffalo Bills football team at 95% odds of making the playoffs. Even if, because of the loss, any hope of winning the division might have dimmed significantly. I mean, I think I saw the percentage, Chris, last week we were about 20% to win the division. And yet, despite New England losing... Our odds dropped to six because of our loss. It seems strange, doesn't it, that we could lose to an AFC opponent and the odds didn't tip against us. Yeah, it is weird. But we had, what, a two-game two game lead on everybody? Well, I think that's the, the, that's the overarching story here is that while we hit our hands full with Baltimore, the rest of the AFC did us a favor. I mean, they set us up pretty nicely. I think the games that mattered the most, you're talking about the Texans lost to the Broncos. I said on this podcast last week that it was the most improbable of all the losses, but that the Texans would somehow have to lose to to Drew Locke in his second start and a team that Buffalo waxed here at home just a week. Two weeks ago? Two weeks before? Yeah, but again, they didn't have Drew Locke playing. He wasn't healthy. I mean, we the Broncos rolled over the Texans. I mean, it it was by two scores, but it wasn't even that close at certain points of the game. It was brutal. Drops the Texans to an 8-5 and five record and forces them to have to play the Tennessee Titans twice in the next three weeks for ultimate control of the division. That loss, combined with the Titans' win, was big for Buffalo, is now both teams are still two games behind us. Or at least have two... What is it, Chris? They have, uh, they have an extra loss. They have those two games against each other. And it creates the, what do we want to call the death scenario of the AFC South? Yeah, they can just beat up on each other. You guys are going to continue cannibalizing each other over the next few weeks. So there's only, the chances of them being a one playoff team division are, I think, it's over 80% at this point. Yeah, because you got Tennessee and Houston to play twice. And then also Tennessee, in between those games, has to play uh, New Orleans. So ultimately, that helped. It helped a lot. Then you got to look at the fact that Indy and Oakland both lost. Yeah, they got to be out at this point. I mean, as predicted, given that their depth, that the Colts' depth chart on offense has been decimated by injury, and that their secondary has been playing kind of soft, the wheels fell off for Indy. And Oakland, I don't even know what the fuck you call that. I'm at home watching the Patriots game on one TV, and I have the Tennessee game on the other. It's tied twenty-one all. In, in the, the third? second, in the second I it was half, in the third. but it's in the second half. It's in the third quarter. Mm, yeah, 
And I'm paying so much attention to the New England game that I'm not paying attention to the other TV. And when I turn my head and I look at the score, they're suddenly losing by 14. It's like, what the fuck just happened? What did you do? <laughs> and then the Tennessee just poured it on. Blew them out, 48-21. 41-21. 41-21? 42-21. Jesus. They're play- now, what that does is it creates multiple seven-loss teams in the AFC. Three losses behind us, even though we just lost this week. So now, Cleveland, Oakland, Indy, those three teams, all of their playoff chances have fallen to below 10%. They not only have to win out in order to even sniff the postseason, but they have to get a lot of help from the teams above them. Like Andy Dalton. Yes, (laughs) like Andy Dalton. So, with that said, the Patriots lost to Kansas City. That helped, too. That did hurt because we lost. Yeah, we won't get into that. Chris, another week, another failure on the part of the Patriots offense. You just hate to see it. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha! Chris, it was one of the best things to just sit back, get the laptop out, start perusing the statistics from our game, and just watch the Patriots fail. Uh, the lady came over and uh, made me dinner on Sunday night, and I could, as I was doing the di- dishes like a gentleman after we ate dinner, I couldn't tell you how many times I heard her from my family room calling Tom Brady a pussy. <laughs> she must have said it like 12 times. Well, she wasn't alone, Chris. Brady and the Patriots offense were so bad on Sunday that as they came off the field at halftime... People booed. Gillette Stadium booed Tom Brady off the field at halftime. <laughs> I mean, Chris, they're probably used to that on the road because everyone seems to agree with us that those guys, for the most part, can go to hell. The fact is that this was in Gillette and that their fans are sorely disappointed. And because I think most of their fans can go to hell too, oh, it just made it even sweeter. I wasn't going to have another beer. And when they started booing, Chris, I think I cracked two of them at the same time. Had a, had a double fist in celebration. <laughs> Outside of trick plays, think about it. Eagles game. Last week's game against Houston. This week's game. They've had to resort to trick plays to generate their offense and scoring. Because traditional offense isn't working for the Patriots. They've now failed to generate 300 yards of total offense three times in the last four weeks. Their loss to Kansas City, think about it. When they lost that game, it was because they did just enough to make the Patriots one-dimensional. They said, throw the ball. And then KC hung on to win. Means that not only is the, the, the dream, I know our percentage dropped in terms of winning the division because we lost. It's still, it's still alive, Chris. But the fact is, is that this Patriots team really is, I mean. Can we both agree that the best play from that game was the, uh, was it Nikhil Harry touchdown pass that wasn't? Because they couldn't challenge because they had no challenges left. <laughs> Suck it, Bill. 
Oh, no. And that was probably my favorite part of the whole fucking game. Everybody, everyone and their fucking mother looks the other way and just says, oh, well, you know, the Patriots, they're really good. When people can point out how many times people who go, other teams that go into Gillette Stadium and just get absolutely bent over a barrel with no lubricant by the officials. It's happened to the Bills. It's happened to, however, what, the Giants played there earlier this year. And there was multiple instances of pass interference that weren't called. And yet, no one bats an eye at it. But when something bad happens to the Patriots, oh, the Patriots got hosed by the officials. Now it's a fucking capital issue for the national media. You can all go fuck yourselves too. You can all get bent. Guess what? The officials are no longer in Tom Brady's pocket, and it. this is what you see. This is the end result. is a flailing disaster. <laughs> so your week 15 rooting guide. Chris, it's weird because, again, like, okay, so we had our bye week. I had the NFL Sunday ticket package. I pay for it every single year because even though it's expensive, I enjoy it because it lets me watch and see what else is. I just love football. And I hate being saddled with a shitty local game when I know there's something more exciting happening somewhere else. That's fair, right? Yeah, it is. I think only because, you know, I don't have Sunday ticket here, but I think once this season have I seen, I think it was the Raiders and uh, Chiefs game that was on local here a couple weeks ago. They actually switched to a different 4 o'clock game because the Raiders were just getting demolished. And that's my point. And that's the only time that it's happened all season. So with that said, it's been strange that I get another Sunday this year. Another Sunday. Our bye week, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and now this impromptu primetime game. The Bills don't play until 8, which means that I have a whole day to sit back and watch NFL football and try to stay sober enough. <laughs> yeah, it's going to well it's going to get I think it'll get worse throughout the day if our rooting interests interests fall in our advantage throughout Sunday, which is going to make your Sunday night even worse. Absolutely. And here's who I'm going to be keeping an eye on on Sunday and who I'm going to be pulling for. First of all, Texans over the Titans. Ultimately, all the Texans have to do is win one of their two matchups with Tennessee to cement themselves in a position to win the division. And that's what we want, Chris, because it's likely that if we make the playoffs, we're going to be traveling to either the winner of the AFC South or the winner of the AFC West. I don't know about you people, but I do not want to go back to Tennessee. Not now. I don't want to go play a team that's been handing people their asses ever since they just put... Chris, they've been grinding teams to death on the ground. And without Marcus Mariota around to give the ball away at least once or twice a game, they're pe- Ryan, uh, Ryan Tannehill has one of the highest QBRs in football over the period of time that he started. He doesn't turn the ball over. He makes smart plays with the football. He trusts his young playmakers to go out there and do things with it, and it's working. Chris, that's not a football team I want to go play. Uh, I'm, I don't want to run that uh, shit back. It's Tennessee. It's basically going to be Ralph Wilson South. I don't know, man. I just I know that I, I'll sleep better at night knowing that Texan the Texan took care of business, and then the Bengals over the Patriots. 
I know it's absurdly unlikely. Chris, what did you? What were you telling me about pre pre show? Uh, apparently, the Patriots were filming the Bengals sideline this week. And then using the uh, excuse that, oh, no, no, it's our rep- our advanced scout that's at the game is being filmed for a documentary. Go fuck yourself. I'm sorry. The Patriots this season, uh, to me, Chris, I feel like they've become a shitty version of Ocean's Eleven. They, they've run out of things. Nothing's working, so they're like, all right, we're going to go to the bag of tricks. But they're even out of the... Bill Belichick has no more tricks left up his sleeve. He burned his last good one against the the Ravens in that AFC championship game where he played the shell game with men, eligible wide receivers, and who was an eligible receiver at the line of scrimmage. (laughs) I feel like he's run out of ideas, so now he's doing what most terrible movie franchises do is they go back to the well with an old premise. Let's go spy on the team (laughs) with video cameras. Oh, ultimately, it's highly unlikely that the, that the Cincinnati Bengals can beat the Patriots. But another AFC loss would help us make up ground in New England, would be hilariously embarrassing for the Patriots as an organization, and would make for some of the best TV since Game of Thrones ended. Fuck the Patriots. <sighs> Chris, I gotta say, ultimately the Bills are in a position where with just a singular win over the next three weeks, they can clinch a playoff berth of their own. And there's there's really not enough happening outside of that. I mean, their own, their own fortunes are theirs to decide. How crazy is that? Yeah, As we're a talking, fan who's watched... Yeah, we were talking about that at the stadium on, a, on Sunday. It's like, this is amazing that, you know, we're three, four games left in the season and... All we need is one win, and we clinch. Weird. I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's there's a Chris. It's all here in front of us. I genuinely, I genuinely will attest that I didn't see this coming, and I'm pleasantly surprised. The Bills control their own destiny for the first time in years, and can make themselves a playoff team on their own merit for the first time in decades, which is to win. Just a win. And they get their first crack at it in front of the whole country. And so it's with that that we are going to head straight into our Week 15 preview. The Buffalo Bills at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Chris, somehow I'm two-fisting. How did I get here? (laughs) No surprise, you generally two-fist all the time. Doesn't matter the circumstance, whether it is a podcast, whether it is tailgating, whether it is taking a shower, whether it is driving a truck. Hey, listen, hey. You two-fist all the time. Those those are baseless allegations. I plead the fizzes. The time, 8.20 p.m. Eastern Standard. The place, Heinz Field in Pittsburgh, PA. The weather looks like it's going to be about 38 degrees, snowing with 13-mile-an-hour winds. On the call, we have L. Michaels and Chris, just mute your television, Collinsworth. And the line, the Bills are currently one and a half point underdogs. It was 2004, Chris. We didn't know each other. I was a college student. Chris was unmarried and life was grand. 
Because all the Bills had to do was make the po- to make the postseason was win a game against the backups of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Unfortunately for everyone, that was also the, the day that a group of backups, including some guy named Willie Parker, who will go down in Steel Town lore, put us firmly on our asses and ruined what was our best shot at making the playoffs in, Chris, six or seven years? Yeah, 99. I had to go to work after that. Working the drive-thru at Mighty Taco in Hamburg, which is not far from the stadium. And I'll be fucked if the line wasn't full of Steelers fans. Most of whom couldn't help but rub in how easy that win was. I remember a guy who started chanting, let's go Steelers at the drive-thru speaker box. And taking all of his lettuce and soaking it in the jalapeno juice. Just to make sure that his request for mild tacos with no hot sauce would go unanswered in a way that couldn't get me fired. Because fuck that guy. I've had enough. I threw tacos at somebody at the end of my shift. And my boss was like, okay, Drew, you've had enough. I think it's time you go, I don't know, go sweep. You need to get away from the customer." <laughs> It's been years, but I have not forgotten the day, Chris. I remember how angry I was. I remember at one point I just went into the cooler, walked into our walk-in freezer, and just screamed at the top of my lungs just to get it out. (laughs) So it's here and now, well over a decade, almost two later, that I still declare with full throat, to hell with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I've had it. That whole city can go screw. They're the fourth most polluted city in the U.S. They have a 35% obesity rate. The streets there randomly turn into one-way streets after certain hours of the day, which no GPS can accurately parse, and at least a quarter of their street signs are just flat-out missing. Fuck, what kind of fucking city are we talking about here? I have my own experiences there because it's a place that my friends like to go sometimes for guys trips. I was <laughs> I was I was asked to leave a gentleman's club called Cheerleaders there once after having been tricked into going there while in the middle of a drunken haze by some of my friends. They legitimately told me we were going to get pizza. Like get out of the Uber and I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute. This place doesn't have pizza." And I was I I, I was <laughs> the bouncer had an eye patch. And while my friends were in the back getting lap dances, I could not stop making pirate jokes. I mean, come on. Can you blame me? I mean, that last one, I don't even know if that's Pittsburgh's fault as a city. But guess how many swashbucklers work here as bouncers in Buffalo? Zero. I've never... Chris, ever seen a bouncer with an eye patch? No. (laughs) No. I've just had a bouncer tell me I couldn't go into a bar because I was wearing a white (laughs) t-shirt. You would, you, you, because obviously you look the type for gang affiliation. And unlike Pittsburgh, Chris, we actually have a body of water that you can sail a ship on. So it would make sense to be, to be somebody with an eye patch here. Ugh. And don't forget the fact that we have just one win over the Steelers since 1993. Well, that was a playoff game, but we haven't won regular season. In Pittsburgh since 1975. And we're 0-7 since 
during that same time span playing within the Steel City limits. Ultimately, I hope a sinkhole swallows that whole city up. That and Rhode Island. Both of those places can get fucked. But that said, Chris, it was noteworthy that when I went to SB Nation's Behind the Steel Curtain, you know, that's their Pittsburgh Steeler fan site, after their game on Sunday afternoon, the first article, the title of the, the like the the head, you know, the leading article was entitled "The Steelers' Defense and Deontay Johnson Beat the Cardinals 23-17. That in and of itself underscores a couple things, Chris. This team is no longer the offensive juggernaut that it has been for a long time with Ben Roethlisberger at the helm, but it's just as dangerous as the last Steelers team that ruined everything for us back in 2004. And so with that, I want to take a look and I want to try to parse through this and break it down. We start on the offense. Efficiency. Thy name is Devlin Hodges. Chris, their quarterback is named Devlin Hodges. Yeah, he goes by Duck Hodges because he's apparently a world champion duck caller. That was him duck calling. That was literally Duck Hodges <laughs> duck calling. I swear to God, if we lose... What the lo- fuck are we talking about here? <laughs> if we lose to a dude named Duck Hodges... <laughs> I saw stand- people in the stands during the Cardinals game wearing duck hats, and I thought to myself, there is no fucking way. There is no fucking way you're making me wear a duck hat. <laughs> Not ever. My wife, not my parents, not my future kids. It doesn't matter. I will never wear a fucking duck hat like that. And yet there's idiots out there grinning ear to ear with this stupid ear flappy. Ugh, makes me sick. A lot has been made of Hodges since he took over the quarterback position from Mason Rudolph, who was almost single. Chris, we can admit it. Rudolph was almost single-handedly sinking their offense. Correct. I can see why when you consider some of the... He, listen... He's been able to stick some feathers in his cap. His completion percentage through two starts has been 66 and 84 this past Sunday. He carries a QBR of 96 and 117, respectively, over his two games. And he has a 2-to-1 touchdown to interception ratio. Tack on a few rushing first downs, he's been efficient enough to allow the defense to keep games close and ultimately has them 2-0 with him as a starter. 3-0 if you go back to his start against the Chargers in week six. But a deeper look at his passing charts and the statistics that kind of work around this tell a story that I feel like gets lost in all of the noise here. And I think, Chris, that if our defensive coordinator, I mean, you're talking about a coordinator that just schemed up, a, a coach and a coordinator that schemed up a plan to shut down the number one offense in football. I think there's some things that can be used against him if we plan well enough. First of all, the teams that he's put these numbers up on have a combined nine wins. They're not great defensively. And while completing 84% of your passes, I mean, Chris, when's the last time Josh, oh wait, never. Josh Allen's actually never completed 84% of his passes. So that's a sizable achievement. The Cardinals are the 32nd team in the league in opponent completions allowed per game. They average 265 So 
through that lens, what Hodges accomplished really wasn't all that special, Chris. If the average team against the Cardinals completes 26.5 completions per game and Hodges had 16, that puts him well behind the sticks. I'm quite confident that Leslie Frazier is going to dial up a game plan that is going to basically render render well, this guy useless. Meanwhile, you look at the Bills. We're ranked 11th in the NFL in completions allowed per game. Then you look at the makeup of his throws, the location, the timing. You take a look at his passer charts over at Next Gen Stats, and you're going to see that a quarterback, on he, he's attempted through two games 30 passes. And he only has seven throws that have gone more than 20 or more yards in the air. That's just 23% of all of his passing attempts. And on him, he's five of seven with one touchdown and one pick. Not bad, not great. It, it is what it is. Meanwhile, 15% of his, 15 of his passes came within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. That's 74% on the right-hand side of the field. It's almost like he's Rick Miner. So 15, half of your passing attempts got completed less than 10 yards from the line of scrimmage and only on the right-hand side of the field. 74%, Chris. Again, (laughs) when you're operating in such a conservative manner like that, it's easy to understand why Sunday against Arizona, no player had a reception of more than 23 yards. Throw in the fact that the only players to see more than three or more targets per game are his boundary-wide receivers, Deontay Johnson and James Washington. It's not great. He doesn't throw over the middle of the field. He doesn't test your safeties, maybe once or twice a game off designed play action. But otherwise, everything he does is a check down. Quite literally, almost everything he does is a check down pass, and 74% of them have gone to the same side of the field. Okay? His short passing has been heavily dependent on yards after the catch to drive his numbers, which is why he has no games of over 200 yards passing. His tight ends are almost irrelevant, which is a, a wild shift from the team we just played. Chris, through his two games... I'm going to read you the stat line for all tight ends on the roster. Five targets, 31 total yards. No touchdowns. So you're telling me they don't really utilize the tight ends. So tell me that that doesn't make your offense more predictable for a good defense, an upper echelon defense to plan for. Now he has two complete games of tape on him. And I think philosophically I've watched it play out this season and I'm beginning to believe that this is gaining steam. There is two complete games of tape, which is proven to be the death knell for rookie quarterbacks this year in terms of predicting their tendencies and planning for them. It happened to Daniel Jones. It happened to Gardner Minshew. We did it to Brandon Allen a few weeks ago. Chris, young quarterbacks have a certain ceiling. They haven't learned. That doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they haven't learned pro football yet. And so when that happens, they know what they know. They know what they're good at. And as soon as the defense takes away what they're good at, it's very hard for them as young players to gravitate away from their strengths and then try to remake their game on the fly. 
which is why you see these young kids struggling, and it's why you've seen a lot of bad quarterback play over across. Chris, right now, there's multiple teams. Well, what did we say last week? There was 15 teams with 500, that were 500 or less in record. Yeah. And most of those teams had played rookie quarterbacks or second-year quarterbacks for an extended period of time. And also played us. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not forget that. My point is, is that... The Steelers have ultimately this quarterback is very much you can you can there's a lot here that you can take away from this quarterback pretty easily. I mean, Chris, if all he's going to do is come off play action, look to his right hand side, which is obviously easier for right handed quarterbacks, and look for the first dump, you know, four, five, six yard completion he can get. If you're going to take that away and force him to throw across his body to the left-hand side of the field, you're already putting him into a position he hasn't he hasn't even attempted over his first two starts. Yeah. Not Rick mention, Meyer. <laughs> Rick Meyer. I love that you even know who that is. Here's the thing about their offense. The Steelers have used the rushing attack behind what is a veteran offensive line that's, Chris, pretty good to fuel the offense. I mean, that's... Chris, they're averaging over 30 carries a game as a football team. They allow Hodges to work off play action to complete those short passes and just hope that those playmakers can do the heavy lifting for him. Against a secondary as talented as ours, though, I don't think that's going to cut it. Especially when you consider that our linebackers are coming off white of what might have been their best day as a unit. I mean, they had 22 total tackles, 13 solo. Short passing may not win you this football game. Chris, at some point, if we can make Hodges throw into the secondary, throw over the middle of the field for the first time in your career, challenge our safeties. At that point, I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster, it looks like he's going to play. So that obviously gives him another weapon. You know, you can line up a better wide receiver on the outside so you're not reliant on Deontay Johnson. But it doesn't matter because, to me, I'm watching a quarterback who doesn't even try to throw some of the most basic routes, like over the back of a linebacker, off play action. You know, that was the thing we were worried about when it came to Baltimore. This quarterback hasn't even attempted it. He doesn't have one. So to that point, this team becomes immediately easier to game plan for. And it's going to be really interesting to see if our offense can do enough to make them a passing team and force Pittsburgh away from their rushing attack and instead try to make them win the game on the strengths of the Ducks' wing. Not going to lie, Chris, if we can do that, I love our chances. Turnovers. And this is another place where I look at their offense and I say, for the fact that you guys are winning these football games, I, I like it. The Steelers have ball security problems, despite the fact that Hodges has done everything he can to avoid negative plays by playing conservatively. They have a 20-straight-game streak of turnovers, Chris. 20 games with at least one. Doesn't that sound a little crazy? Yes, it does. I mean, I'm looking at this. They've had eight turnovers since week 11. When you look at the Buffalo Bills, we've had just two during the same time span. How do you turn the ball over eight times? Seems like this could be a very good game for uh, Buffalo to have a defensive touchdown. Well, and this is the thing. 
They're currently ranked 23rd in ball security. So, despite the benching of Mason Rudolph for his part in that, it's worth noting that Hodges has fumbled the ball in every single one of his starts, even going back to Week 6 against the Chargers, while also adding an interception on just 30 passing attempts. This is an aspect of the game that I expect that the Bills' defense is going to be paying particular attention to in their film review over the course of the week, because Hodges has been efficient. You know what I mean? He, he, Chris, how hard is it to complete a three-yard pass and just hope that the guy can make, make hay out of it? It's not hard. We've seen that here before. We had a guy called Trent Edwards before. Exactly. But he's never faced a secondary like ours. Exactly. Not once, not, not once in his very young career has he seen a defense like Buffalo's. And they're still struggling to overcome injuries to some of their key offensive weapons. Tight end Vance McDonald. He's, he left with a concussion. Who knows what his status is going to be. Running back James Conner. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't be available. Juju Smith-Schuster with his knee. He's going to be back. Maybe he's 100%. Maybe he's not. If these players remain out, our secondary, I think it's able to put its focus on stopping players far less polished. Like wide receiver James Washington. Okay, That dude's a deep threat. Okay, good. You're going to... I like my chances when I've got... Trey White, when I've got Kevin Johnson, Poyer, when I've got <laughs> Micah Hyde, Levi Wallace. I'm telling you, I like the way we stack up as a secondary against this talent group. I like the way we tackle as a defense against this group of receivers and against a quarterback who doesn't like to air the ball out in those kind of high turnover areas of the field, down the middle, up the seam. He's never seen anything like this. And I think that what you're going to see is he's going to start to, as our defense starts to take away the Juju Smith-Schusters and the James Washingtons, he's going to start trying to force the ball to players that he doesn't have in-game chemistry with. And that could result in negative plays and turnovers. Add to the fact that our team attacks the football. Chris, right now we're currently ranked, we're tied with three other teams. We could be ninth or we could be 12th. We're tied for 12th. (laughs) <laughs> we're ranked 12th but it's tied for 9th in the NFL in forced fumbles which is something that the Steelers have had a problem with at almost every position wide receiver, running back quarterback the fact that we attack the football the way that we do and the fact that they're well coached in that aspect and we tackle well and we gang tackle well I'm telling you that there's going to be some plays made in this aspect that could swing the game in our favor I'll be paying attention to the speed of Jerry Hughes then. Absolutely. If you're telling me there's going to be could be fumbles in the game, I'll be wanting to watch what Jerry Hughes can do against that tackle. On the opposite side of the ball is where shit gets dicey, Chris. Their front seven is a mountain to climb. Against Baltimore, our offensive line regressed in pass protection for, grossly from what we saw against Dallas and allowed Josh Allen to take just an absolute beating. If they can't pull their heads collectively out of their asses, Allen could be in for another rough ride on Sunday night. It's, it doesn't get. I can't. I can't state this enough. The Steelers enter the game leading the NFL in sacks and quarterback hits. You look over their last three games and you see that most of the statistics belong to the front seven, but that makes sense because they're deep and they're stocked with first-round talent. Chris, they have Cam Hayward, 
former first-round draft pick. He's your veteran D-end, leader of the defense. Rushes with power. He's an aggressive dude. He's mean. You know what I mean? Like, he's one of those players that plays with a mean streak. TJ Watt. Disruptive presence as a blitzer and as an inside linebacker. And he'll drop into coverage just as easily as he'll cover running backs in the flat as he'll come downhill in the A-gap. Bud Dupree, another first-round draft pick. Outside linebacker who excels at rushing the passer and covering running backs in the flat. Devin Bush, another first-round draft pick. This year's draft pick, an inside linebacker. He's athletic in coverage, makes a lot of plays at or behind the line of scrimmage. One thing that I think people don't pay attention to outside of Pittsburgh is that the Steelers have quietly excelled over the last two seasons at getting to opposing quarterbacks and forcing negative plays. And that hasn't changed much. As you look over the last two weeks of plays, shows them averaging 10 tackles for a loss, four and a half sacks, and seven quarterback hits per game. And all of that is coming from the front seven. Those do come at the expense of two mediocre offensive lines. I'll say that. You know, Cleveland, they're not great. Arizona, obviously their team's not. (laughs) Their team's in a bunch of world beaters on offense, at least up front. But the fact is, is that they're crushing the people that they're playing because the defense seems to know that they are the catalyst. They're the thing that's going to win them these football games. And if that weren't problematic enough, the just absurd athleticism across their front seven makes it hard to run the football. They're fresh off a game where in hostile territory, their defense held Kyler Murray to two yards rushing. And as a team, held them to three yards per carry. Chris, Kenyon Drake has been running wild on people. The whole team held the three yards per carry. So what you're telling me is we're going to dress Lee Smith. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, how do you how do you how do you attack this? Because you listed T.J. Watt, Bud Dupree, Devin Bush. They're all linebackers. Like, so how do you all first round talents? Yeah. So how are you going to attack that? From a blocking standpoint, are you going to use tight ends? Are you going to use DeMarco? It's going to be hard. It's going to be one of these things where what they're going to have to do is try to find a way to get people in space against those linebackers past the defensive line. I mean, it's a lot like you're playing the Ravens, except I'd almost argue that this front seven is better than what the Ravens bring to the table. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the secondary. I mean, I know that they've got some veteran pieces in there for the Steelers. Their safeties aren't nearly as good as the Ravens' safeties, and I think that's what makes that defense because they can bottle things up on the back end so that their over-aggression up front doesn't get them burned because their safeties can hem things in. But the Steelers are still going to come at the Bills in waves up front, and it's gonna if we have another game like we had against the Ravens, Chris, I don't know how this whole thing's going to shake out. I really don't. I mean... If they don't get their shit together on the offensive line, they're going to force a lot of negative plays and they're going to tee off on our quarterback. And this front seven may blitz even more than Baltimore did, which is only going to make life harder. Ultimately, I think the make-or-break thing for this team Sunday is how do you deal with that? You just watched, as a coaching staff, you just watched your team get pummeled. You lost a close game but it's because you took a three-quarter beating by another front seven. 
What are you going to do between now and the next matchup with another just absolutely talent-stocked front seven? You're gonna, what you're what gonna, are you going to do to figure it out? What you're going to do is, because tomorrow's an off day for the Bills, the offensive line probably already took Josh Allen to dinner tonight for what <laughs> happened on Sunday, and they'll do that again tomorrow for what's going to happen next Sunday. <laughs> Look, we're sorry. Here's free dinner. And then when you look at the back end of the Steelers' defense, there's no turnover issues here. Not like the offense. The other thing the Steelers do more than most other teams in football, other than sack the quarterback, has been key to their push to the postseason, which is forcing turnovers in the secondary, riding the coattails of that absurd play up front. They are second in the NFL in interceptions, and because of it, they're number one in total takeaways. They do a lot of interesting things with their coverages. Most of it's keyed by what the front seven does with their pressure, though. A perfect example of this, T.J. Watt's interception against the Cardinals when he dropped back almost like a safety, just into the middle. He, he faked a blitz and then dropped back in a deep zone into the, into the end zone, almost like he was a safety. Kyler Murray never saw him. Just saw his wide receiver breaking across the formation and through the football. And T.J. Watt, easiest pick he'll ever get in his career. That speaks to his talent and also the scheme that they like to employ. They're going to run man coverage on the outside. I mean, Joe Hayden, veteran cornerback, he he's excelled in a man role. When the, when the Cleveland Browns switched to a zone scheme, they got rid of Joe Hayden because they didn't like him for that kind of a fit. So now he's with the Steelers. He's very good at man coverage, and that's what you're going to see a lot from them on the outside of this defense. But underneath, their linebackers are going to play a lot of different games because you're never really going to know who's blitzing, who's faking a blitz to drop back in the zone, where their safeties are going to be. They very much do mix their pressure with a nice array of zone coverage that makes it hard. And then... You, you think about Minka Fitzpatrick, former Alabama safety, 11th pick overall in the draft just a year ago. He's traded from Miami to Pittsburgh. Week three, he has five interceptions since then. Again, they deploy him as a safety, but he's a rover. He hangs out behind the front seven, just kind of camping on routes and want, waiting to see, almost playing just an open center fielder like a robber, trying to see who's doing what underneath and seeing if he can jump around or break up a pass or come downhill on a, to try to snuff out a running play. They do a lot of things. And because of what they do is they capitalize on poor decision-making and rush throws, which gets caused by the havoc that their front seven is able to wreak on a, opposing offenses. Ultimately, the defense is a truly playoff caliber unit. Okay, Chris, we just came up short. Lorenzo Alexander talked about it. We just came up short against a team that is one of the NFL's best. There's something to build off of there. But now you're going into a game that, listen, you're more evenly matched for. You have to find a way. And unfortunately, they're better in the aspect of pressuring the quarterback than the team that you just lost to. The thing that you don't do well, they're absolutely going to use against you at this point. It's coming, whether you like it or not. 
they're, they're going to try to turn you over. And if you lose that battle, you will lose this football game. <laughs> Chris. Oh, I'm going to be extremely interested to see how our offensive coordinator and our young quarterback handle this, Chris, because this might be one of the biggest tests and it comes on one of the biggest stages. Either one of them has seen this to this point in their career. What do you think? It's going to be it's going to be a challenge. It's definitely definitely going to be a defensive game because Duck Hodges, who has too many chromosomes, is not seeing a defense like ours at we all. We haven't seen a defense like theirs. Yeah, and it's going to be a low scoring game. Well, Chris, that brings us, as it always does, to the keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. And I am feeling fucking... Chris, I'm feeling like the Incredible Hulk tonight. Keys to victory. The Bills have been handed a golden opportunity against a team that, unlike the Ravens, they are... Like, now you're fighting in your own weight class. We're going to stick with the boxing analogy. You fought up. You know, you, you were Rocky trying to fight Clubber Lang, Ivan Drago. Now you're Rocky trying to fight, I don't know, who was that uh, white kid in Rocky Five? Tom, Tommy Morrison? Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn? <laughs> and he beat Tommy Gunn's ass. I think Tommy Morrison was an actual boxer that died of AIDS. Oh, Jesus. That's dark. <laughs> well, I, Good I, Lord. I knew it was Tommy something. I've seen Rocky Five. <laughs> You've seen Rocky Five, but not Taxi Driver and the Usual Suspects. No. You go fuck yourself. Ugh. Unfortunately for us, it's on the road in a place and against a team that we have historically struggled with. And it comes with the added pressure of being played in front of the entire country. Chris, I was, I was optimistic about this game when I saw the schedule because in my head I say, hey, 1 p.m. in Pittsburgh, maybe we sneak in there, no one's paying attention, and we just fucking, we get in and out of Dodge quietly, almost like we stole something. Yeah. And we beat this team. And then Ben Roethlisberger fucked his elbow up. So now you feel even better about it. Yeah, and then Mason Rudolph not playing well, and we get another undrafted rookie (sighs) quarterback. And so now we have to go in there on prime time, okay? And this is what people, I think, discount. There is a pressure that comes with these primetime games. That's a pressure that so many of these Pittsburgh players are already well acquainted with. Pittsburgh's already played multiple primetime games this year. That offensive line and that defensive front seven, they're all veterans and they've all been with the team for a while. They're used to this. Chris, this is where they live. They're well coached and they get up for games like this. Meanwhile, you've got guys on the Bills roster who have what? Had one? Well, we haven't played Sunday. One primetime game ever in well, their careers? We haven't played Sunday night since that one time we got shellacked by the Patriots. and Randy Josh Moss. Allen still has not started a game after 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. Well, now he's going to do it. It's going to be nerve-wracking. Both for us as fans and for our players, I'm sure. But we can absolutely come away with a win if we take care of a few specific things. Chris, my first key to victory, the offensive line has to unfuck itself. Okay? The Steelers' front seven has handled much, much more talented offensive lines than those employed by the Bills. 
and the ripple effect is evident. The last nine games, seven of them, they've held their teams to under 200 yards passing. And that's playing Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield. Their turnover margin has been massive. Predicated on rush passes that don't account for the way they mix their coverages on the back end. The sacks have been piling up, resulting in fresh opportunities for their offense to grind more clock and win the field position battle. The Bills' offense has to find a way to stay ahead of the sticks. You have to protect Allen, and you got to find a way to execute quick plays to take advantage of the fact that they're going to bring a ton of pressure. It starts up front. If your five guys in the middle of that line can't get things done, I don't know how this game's going to how this game's going to turn out. The second key is creative usage of Devin Singletary. When you look at the success of their front seven, they've been vulnerable on the ground against decent running teams. Not great, but decent. During the span we just mentioned, where they held everyone to under 200 passing, they've allowed four teams to run for over 100 yards. In order to not only stabilize the offense, but to keep the Steelers from just pinning their ears back and coming after Josh Allen for large chunks of the game like we saw on Sunday, the Bills have to find a way. Singletary, you have to get him the ball in space or create running lanes for him to operate against. Get him to the second level consistently. What a point out to you on Sunday. Hey, hey, look at that. Look over there. Devin Singletary, he's lined up wide against a linebacker. Ten-yard ten yard catch. <laughs> you have to be Spider-2-Y yes. banana. Spider-2-Y banana. You shut your mouth. That the fact that the last time you called that and then the Raiders scored a touchdown using that play, you're a dick. You're a dick. Sorry, I'm an expert over here. You're an expert. Film expert Chris Krueger. The biggest thing is going to be this, Chris. It's not any one individual player. You know, people want to say, oh, it's Josh Allen's first time. It's this, it's that. No, 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 no. Coaches have to shine. Sunday might have been the most impressed by a game plan I've been in a long time for the Buffalo Bills. Our staff clearly spent a lot of time grinding the tape and coming up with the best answers to a test that everyone in the NFL has been failing up to this point. Ultimately, it wasn't enough, but it was an impressive performance on that defensive side of the ball to see that our staff is capable of that level of preparation. They're going to have to do it again here on both sides of the football. On offense, it's going to be figuring out ways to use Knox, Singletary, and Beasley. Because, Chris... They're going to do everything they can to take away John Brown the same way the Ravens did. But their, sec- their front seven's vulnerable to guys like this. So let's work them. And it's going to depend on how they respond to that challenge and how creative we can get with the utilization of these guys. <sighs> it, Allen's going to have enough problems. He's going to need a couple go-to guys during the course of the game, and it can't be John Brown all the time. No, it's got to be Lee Smith. Oh, my God. Don't even talk to me about Lee Smith. Ultimately, what you have to do is you have to score enough to force Pittsburgh away from its rushing attack. If you can do that, 
Now, not only can you run the ball and take some of the pressure off Josh Allen, but you're also going to put them on offense, the the Steelers that is, you're going to put them in a hole and force them to play from a, a position of weakness. On defense, it's going to be figuring out how to do what you did to Brandon Allen, an inexperienced rookie quarterback playing his second game to Devlin Hodges. You unravel his tendencies and his tells and put together a game plan that takes away what it is he's been relying on for the last two weeks. At this point, Chris, I don't have any reason to doubt Sean McDermott. When Sean McDermott came to us as fans, after he benched Tyrod Taylor against San Diego, and he said, hey, I made a mistake, I'm going to fix it. And then we went to Kansas City and beat them on the road. And he said, well, wait a minute, that's not a... You assume, oh, hey, your, your players are probably mad at you. You made a bad decision as a coach. He says, hey, I'll fix it. I know what the problem is. I'll get it sorted out. And we went on to make the playoffs that year. Last year, after we got shellacked by the Colts, Sean McDermott took the podium and, you know, Coach Ambien himself, walking narcolepsy, he said, hey, I understand that we aren't good enough as a team in any phase, and we're going to fix it. Josh Allen came back the following week. Or no, actually, I think the, the following week was the New York Jets game where Matt Barkley just dropped bombs on New York City. And then, well, actually, technically East Rutherford, New Jersey. And then Josh Allen came back, and we never looked back from there. We won, we won more than we lost during that stretch. So... When you hear Sean McDermott come out this season and say, hey, I understand that our offense isn't good enough and we're going to fix it. We're going we're gonna to play fearless. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to fix the problems that exist here. We know they exist and we're going to get them. Who am I to doubt him? And Sunday, his team played one of the gutsiest games that anybody's played against a Super Bowl caliber team. So with that said... He's going to now go toe-to-toe with another good head coach and Mike Tomlin. I think our roster has more talent at the quarterback position. I think that our coaching staff, if he truly means what he says, then they should be able to learn from the experience they just went through and figure out how to work around an aggressive defense that stresses your offensive line. It's going to be on this staff to do the thing that McDermott has been that he's been doing his entire career. Turning things around when they go sideways. You do that, this win, you know, everyone talks about what this win would mean for our playoff chances. You win it, you clinch. I'm looking bigger than that. A win like this would take Sean McDermott and put him firmly in that conversation of quote-unquote good NFL coaches. There's a lot of bad coaching in the NFL right now. Sean McDermott has an opportunity right here to firmly plant himself outside of that conversation. Would you agree? Yeah. This this game, he can be put on the map as one of the better coaches and I think a win against the Steelers who've been streaking since starting 0-3 a win here for the Bills, you could also uh, 
throw McDermott's name in the ring for uh, Coach of the Year. Your predictions for the game, sir? Uh, it's simple. We're playing against a undrafted quarterback. I have no worries in our defensive coordinator and our head coach putting together a game plan to shut down Duck Hodges. I firmly believe that we will win this football game. It will be low scoring because both defenses are extremely good. I think it's going to be Buffalo 16 to 13. <laughs> oh, you're you putting a lot of faith in the kicker, huh? Yes. All right. You're back in. You're back in on the Stephen Hauschka train after he just aced things this week. Yeah, only for a couple weeks, and we get a new kicker. <laughs> Folks, this is it. This is the game. This is the game that every Bills fan has complained about that we don't get. We don't get the primetime games. We don't get national recognition. We don't get this. We don't get that. But the NFL has respected what we did against the Cowboys enough. And they saw this coming. They figured we wouldn't beat the Ravens. They probably didn't figure we'd take take them to the wire the way we did. But we're here now in a place where the whole world wants to see what these Buffalo Bills are all about. There has never been a time when we've been more relevant, where anyone has given a fuck about what we are and what we can be. With that said, I think that this is the staff and this is the talent that's up to the task. I think, not even so much on offense, I think on defense, this team, there's too much there. I think there's too much for an undraft, to your point, an undrafted free agent rookie quarterback to overcome. There's too much there for you without a stud running back. Without, I mean, even with Juju Smith-Schuster coming back to the lineup. Okay, you've got a Juju, I have a, I have a Trey. Okay, you have, a, you have a Devlin Hodges. I have a much bigger, stronger, faster, more experienced Josh Allen. You have an offensive line that's been together for years and you've been in the trenches and you've been in the playoffs and you've done, okay, you know what I have? I have a coaching staff that I'd like to believe on the offensive side of the ball knows it's coaching for its life. And on the defensive side of the ball knows that it can coach circles around you. Their talent is too good. They execute better. We win this game. And I think they make another statement here on national television. You're talking about a 20, I'm going to call it 21-13. Ooh, three touchdowns. Three touchdowns. Chris? God help us if we don't win this game. Because that means we're going into Foxborough looking for the playoff clinching victory. Yeah, I'd rather clinch this week and then not last week of the season at home. So raise your glass. Cheers. We're toasting to what is hopefully a Buffalo Bills win. Before we get out of here, Chris, we need to tell the people. Folks, as my beer overflows... God, December 23rd, make sure you all show up and participate in our fifth annual Festivus celebration. Festivus is back! You're damn right, baby! That's right, folks. It started out as a Seinfeld-themed coping mechanism during the Rex Ryan era, during our very first season of ever ever doing a podcast. 
And now for five straight years, we're going to get together during the holiday season. And with the help of our listeners, air our collective grievances over the Buffalo Bills. I, I promise you, it's a cathartic exercise. We laugh, we drink, people get gift certificates. It's great. Like Frank Costanza. We all, we, we just get all of our disappointments off of our chest and head into what is hopefully the postseason with clear eyes and a clean slate. Chris, am I wrong to say it's become a staple of our show? It's a, well, yeah. Usually it, it, at this point in the season, like we're almost looking forward to it because we're already <laughs> out of the playoffs. But this is weird. We're going to be in the playoffs. But I'm sure there are still grievances to have. With the 2019 Buffalo Bills, so email us, tweet at us. We'll be posting a thread on a thread on Reddit. Open it up to Twitter and Facebook. So whether it's commenting on the thread, whether you message us on Facebook, direct message us on Twitter, or tweet at us with the hashtag Bills Grievances, letting us know what grinds your gears about the 2019 Buffalo Bills. We're gonna read the best submissions we get on the show. We'll toast. It's going to be a great time. We laugh about them. It's about getting it off our chest and moving forward. Guys, the Buffalo Bills hopefully will be moving forward the next time we speak. Hopefully the next time we talk, we will be in the playoffs. Guys, we got to get the hell out of here. Thank you for showing up on an off-day podcast. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pal Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.